Welcome back to Starry Sky and Witchy Things, the podcast where star magic goes out for cosmopolitans with self-empowerment and nervous system regulation. On this show, I bring to you the spark notes from the Western esoteric tradition before the Golden Dawn, especially the Renaissance, which was an age of intellectual vigor and focused on the experience of being human. And also guests to help you empower yourself to live a more magical life that you feel lucky you get to live. Today we are talking about hedonists, libertines and dandies, which is quite ironic since one of the most famous dandies, Oscar Wilde, is someone who said the artistic existence is one lovely suicide. And to an extent, I kind of agree. I'm fairly infamous for liking sad stories that make me cry like I'm Novalis reincarnate, which, if you look at portraits of the man, is not so hard to believe. We're freaking twins. It's not even just hack-walking and how my friends think that if ultimate love interest is about to die, preferably of TB, he is going to be my Oshi. My favourite poem is Alexander Pope's Eloisa to Abelard, whose most famous verse is the one that gave the title to a dealing with love and loss. However, my personal favourite line, or should I say stanza, really, is a different one, and it used to be my Skype status for years. And, fun fact, my username itself was taken from a French rock album titled The Murder of Venus, so I couldn't have been more tragic if I tried. Still on that breast, enamel let me lie. Still drink delicious poison from thy eye. Pant on thy lip and through thy heart be pressed, give all thou canst, and let me dream the rest. What can I say? I am romantic like that. Anyway, I titled the episode Art, Healing and Pleasure because I wanted to dig deeper into something that came up in both books I mentioned in episode 1 of season 4, but also look at the intersection of self-discovery, magic and sex and kink in the history of art. It's likely I will circle back to the three categories of people we'll be looking at in their respective philosophies in the future as well. Sadly for you, we're talking about something I have been obsessed with since I was a teenager, so that's half of my life. And I have researched it in depth, and I like nothing more than a captive audience to dump all that onto especially since technically you are not a captive audience. You chose to listen to my intellectual ramblings when you press play and you are able to walk away, although I hope you won't. In Big Magic, Elizabeth Gilbert dedicates a whole few sections to refuting the idea that the only art of value is art born out of pain or what our intellectual tradition would see as the tormented artist. And I realised the irony of writing the notes for this episode while Spotify is playing Jade by Ed's Japan. I love a sad song, like the rest of us. But the thing for me is that it's never about suffering for the sake of the art, or fetishizing the suffering on account of the art. The point of art that is born out of suffering is that art is alchemy that helps us to transmute the suffering into something beautiful and pleasurable. 
Art is a phoenix rising from the ashes of our human experience, and yes, often our human experience would be one of pain, but it'll often be one of pleasure too. Beautiful things have been born out of contentment and peace. And I believe that we need art born of both. Because while the art making process is alchemy to the artist, engaging with art is alchemy to everyone else too. Back in ancient Greece, Aristotle wrote about this theory in his Poetic. He wrote specifically in terms of the social function of tragedies in theatre, but it works for positive emotions too, if you are open to it. The idea of catharsis is that the experience of emotions through fictional stories alchemizes our own feelings without us having to experience the same situation in order to achieve the knowledge and capacity for empathy. I believe the human ability to connect to other people's emotions is why a smile is contagious. Most of us who are in a bad mood are able to lift the dark clouds at the sight of a kitten. Although I have witnessed plenty of people holding resolutely to their bad moods no matter what, so it's not a foolproof plan. It requires us being open to magic. However, modern science is on my side on this one. For the brain ones who embrace a human calling to be artists, it takes a mere 45 minutes of creating to reduce their cortisol levels. And for those who are still watching from the sidelines, one or more art experiences a month can extend your life by 10 years. Your brain on art has a lot to say about the impact of music on our parasympathetic nervous system and what uses are there for all the arts when it comes to not only healing adults, but creating resilience in children from early on. And I could dedicate the whole episode to the findings of the book, but I'd rather encourage you to buy it if you need any more convincing. So if you continue to listen past this point, I will assume that you are on board with the idea that the ultimate goal of art is pleasure. Another book I have read as part of my research for season four is Catherine Fletcher's The Beauty and the Terror, an alternative history of the Italian Renaissance. And I recommend it if you like a comprehensive overview of the most exciting period of European history, according to me. Anyway, the premise of the book is that art and war were inseparable in the culture of the time and that the mingling in the day-to-day life of all actors on the historical stage informed the way they viewed art and what art we got as a result, and to an extent what we saw as art. One book she mentioned extensively is an old friend of mine, Baldassares Castiglione's The Courtesan, which I can't remember if he made the cut in some earlier episodes about our self-concepts and attitude to life, but which expanded among its principles the idea of sprezzatura. The idea is not dissimilar to the concept of nonchalance, or effectively the effort it takes to make gracefulness and ease of manner appear effortless. It was an early idea of the dandy, which would become established with the social prominence of Bo Bramall in the late 19th century. And effectively, it made a person into a work of art even though the concept did not yet extend to the idea of life itself as a work of art. And it's my opinion, so feel free to disagree, that the concept would have been alien at the time, because the cultural ideas of art were still deeply religious, 
especially in the countries that remained Catholic after the Reformation. But even those that eventually became Protestant took several decades to see a major shift in cultural attitudes. So even art that was obviously profane, like erotic art, still subscribed to the aesthetic ideals of the time. The emphasis on beauty and idealization of the female form does not exist in a vacuum. It was influenced by the dominant religion and the use of classical themes to make subjects that would fall foul of Christianity more socially acceptable. Anyway, this is not a history of art podcast, so I'll move on. Although now I obviously want to start one. If you have listened to earlier episodes, you know already that magic also came about again in this period. The way the Renaissance occult philosophy saw magic was, to an extent, art too. For people like Marsilio Ficino and Giovanni Piccolo della Mirandola, uh, magic had a solemn religious purpose. The magician explores the secret of nature as to arouse wonder at the works of God and to inspire a more ardent worship and love of the Creator. Which is also the role of all the art that talk about God to a population that could neither read or afford books to read to even learn to, or understand much of the wording of the Mass beyond the sermon if it was given in the popular language. The Renaissance could be seen, however, as the point in time where the religious preoccupation shifted from collective to individualistic. A lot of people seem to believe that the Middle Ages were a boring time that had no fun, it was all about prayer, and then suddenly we see a shift away from it as people become more invested in science leading up to the Enlightenment. That couldn't be farthest from the truth. And not just because the Middle Ages were big on the carnival and other festivals like it. However, the shift toward life that was more focused on the individual is part of the changes in philosophy that came from the rediscovery of ancient texts. And magic is a part of that, as is hedonism. I mentioned before that I subscribe to this philosophy, or rather one of a family of philosophies whose commonality is the idea that pleasure is key to humanity. It does not equate, like it does in popular culture, to the egoistic pursuit of short-term gratification by indulging in sensory pleasures without regard for the consequences. Anyway, according to a number of authors in the esoteric space, so did our dear friend Alistair Crowley, who is named on the Wikipedia page for libertinism. An argument could be made that it applies to literally anyone who was alive at the turn of the century and evolved in either the arts or occultism, or both because the overlap was almost required. So it is my belief that it is impossible to look at the ideas around art, magic and creativity without looking at these philosophies and how they evolved. And the first point I want to look at is the idea at the centre of the debate, the idea of pleasure. Now, the English word comes from the French plaisir, source of enjoyment, pleasing quality or thing, that which pleases or gratifies the senses or the mind, which also means discretion, will, desire, preference, from the Latin placere. Hedonism, however, will not enter the vocabulary until the 19th century, when it becomes a word to talk about the Greek philosophy. I'm not mentioning it just because I'm a language geek. There are three key facts. One, the word hedone 
came to us through the Latin suavis, which gave us the word sweet and suave. Two, the word hedone was in fact a name, and the name of the personification of sensual pleasure, daughter of Eros and Psyche in the mythology. And three, the idea of referring to the Greek philosophies as hedonism reflects the biases of the 19th century scholars more than the philosophies themselves. What I mean is, Aristotle talked about hedone too, as did many others. But we tend to associate the word specifically with Epicurus and talk about his philosophy by that word rather than by his name, as we do with all other schools, unless you are that kind of philosophy student. Doing that involved pleasure in his philosophy when pain was just as prevalent. Anyway, I find it fascinating that the mythology has the god of love and the goddess of the soul beget sensual pleasure that counter all of the views of the supremacy of the intellect over the body and the tendency to asceticism in Christianity that the recurrent popularity of such philosophy aims to counter. That's not talked about quite as much as I believe it should be, which is why I claim that philosophical label for myself. Anyway, this brings me to another group of folks I want to talk about today, the Libertines. Not the band, although of course I love the band, but the people we sit at the extreme end of hedonism that is often conflated with the full extent of it. So the term derives from a political party in Geneva at the time of John Calvin, and it's simply the French freethinker. The party, headed by Ami Perrin, opposed Calvin's strict religious rule. It was not until almost two centuries later that we see the idea of libertinism that we're more familiar with. And even then, I believe we often are so quick to see the dirty bits that we forget how much of it was first of all satire, and also, even when completely serious, it was a political stance against the establishment, especially the religious establishment. And in the case of one of the most infamous libertines, John Wilmot, second Earl of Rochester, materialistic philosophies such as that of Thomas Hobbes. And if you were wondering why I'm bringing this up in a podcast about magic, that's why. There's nothing we have documenting any relations or roster with anything occult, mind, but it's hard to argue that it didn't show the mindset that would be inherited by that tradition. And since the tradition in question, which is the overlap of English and French occultism that gave us the Golden Dawn, which has shaped things to such an extent, we think they are the tradition, and often you'll see their ideas discussed outside of Thelema in a way that takes for granted they are just all that there is to magic. I believe it's relevant to look at how we get the principles that we got from them. Now, if you look into the foundational idea of Thelema, do what thou wilt. Magicians of that inclination would be quick to point out pure will is nothing like the hedonistic understanding of doing what we want, while also actively practicing sex magic, which to me only speaks of how we misunderstand what hedonism is actually about. But if we trace back to the hermetic tradition, before the channeling of the Book of the Law, basic point of contention is the role of the body in our lives. And the common idea in spiritual circles is that we are a soul having a human experience and not a body is a hermetic principle. 
And the main criticism of hedonism that would come from hermeticism is that excessive focus on pleasures that are fleeting and therefore bound to cause pain when missing. And life becomes then an endless chase for those pleasures rather than the pleasure in itself, which is meant to be life is the pleasure. But when we talk about the Emerald Tablet, we are talking about a text that, first of all, has been considered a forgery by many. So it could even be later than the time I'm talking about. But assuming it is a text from the time it is claimed it is from, it originated in the time of early Christianity, just a little after the time of Epicurus, whose philosophy was more focused on finding pleasure in the moderation and limitation of desire rather than the desire itself. And it was a philosophy of avoidance of pain rather than embracing of pleasure. Anyway, Christianity, on the other hand, was a philosophy of asceticism, with more or less open Gnostic tones, since the Church had to declare Gnosticism a heresy at the Council of Nicaea in 325 CE, to give a final parameter of what was orthodox in the battle between body and spirit. So, the fact that the Church declared it a heresy formally means that it was like a big deal in the discussion between intellectuals. So, not characteristic of Christianity was raising the nation to what is, since it was effectively a doomsday cult. All the writings of the early church, and especially Apostle Paul, have a vibe of worrying not about your lot in life, whether you're rich or a slave, you don't have a lot of time to pray your way into heaven. So, hermeticism can be codified as a response to this mindset that prioritizes the spiritual experience over the human experience just as much as hedonism. But let's jump back to the world after Calvin, as I believe that's where reviving hedonism has a stronger purpose. What appears to me to be the biggest point of contention is that no one has a coherent definition of pleasure that we can all agree on. At the time of this recording, we don't have the science to be fully conscious of how pleasure works in our brain to swing the argument in one direction or the other. What I have as a point of contention with both sides, personally, is the idea that hedonism equates the, to the motivational hedonism of the 18th century, which is about what motivates us to action. The more ancient forms of hedonism focus on the role of pleasure in our overall well-being and idea of a good life. If you look at things like yoga and the way cozy comforts like food, good company and soft materials make the happiest people in the world survive winters with no light while the rest of the world doesn't fare as well in that kind of ranking, it's hard for me to argue that there is no merit into hedonism as a philosophy. What does this have to do with magic though? It's mostly about the mindset underneath it and what Ocean Kaltoy termed latent Christianity. I think it's worth exploring the ways in which we may still be holding our power back because whether or not we engage in sex magic, pleasure is the highest vibration for manifesting. I'm far from a Abraham Hicks girly, but in the emotional guidance scale, we find the idea that some emotional states have a heavier energy and others are lighter. That, in my opinion, does not equate good or bad. And that's evident if you look at them through the Hindu idea of the chakra, for example, where there isn't as much of a rejection of the lower chakra as it's often the case in our inability to sit with our emotions. So the seven highest emotions on the scale are 
on the same level, joy, appreciation, empowerment, freedom and love, then passion, then we have on the same level, enthusiasm, eagerness and happiness, then on the same level, positive expectation and belief, then optimism, then hopefulness and then contentment. These are all forms of pleasure that are deeper than the fleeting pleasure of eating a piece of chocolate or having an orgasm or whatever. Conversely, we have boredom as the next step going lower on the scale. That's a lack of pleasure. Then we start building on the harder emotion on top of each other and on top of this lack of pleasure. And on a very basic psychological like, physiological, sorry, level. Giving us pleasure from physical touch to anything that gets the brain to produce oxytocin is a way to move back up the scale. And it's not a coincidence that mental health assessments ask you if you felt little pleasure in activities recently. The homeostasis of a human being is one of pleasure. It may not be huge pleasure or linked to something specific, but we are meant to enjoy life. And especially as magicians and witches who want to manipulate energy to achieve a result, we want to move from a place of giving ourselves permission to want the things we want. And that might mean shadow work is needed, or like I was talking about last week, maybe that's covered for now and what you need to do is take aligned action towards your desires. Either way, I hope I made a case that we need to connect with the pleasure of being alive in this human body and enjoy the human experience. I love to hear from you about what you think. And all of the details on how to find me are in the show notes. And until next time, keep living in wonder.